Good morning, beloved. Good news. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. This very morning, he is crowned with glory and honor, seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and every name that is named. In this age and in the one to come, the Father's put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to us, the church. This morning, as always, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. In him, all things hold together. How conscious are we of that power as we go throughout our day? When we're in conversations with people who need Jesus. When you're in tense situations and you need Jesus. Does his all-reaching authority come to mind? The scripture we'll read today is written for this purpose. To help us live in light of Jesus' all-reaching authority according to how God wants us to live. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Our story today has four scenes. We'll read them one at a time. And to prepare you mentally, these four scenes may feel disconnected as we walk through the passage. Stick with me. It'll all come together in the end. Let's pray one more time for God to speak. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for inspiring this holy word by your Holy Spirit um, through your apostles. Uh, may we hear these words today um, as you're speaking to us today. These words are meant for us to change us, Father. So may we have not wasted this hour of our lives just coming to sing some songs, hear some words, but give us hearts that receive these words as our Creator's words, our Savior's words, our Beloved's words, Lords, and change us. We cannot change ourselves. We come to you needy, empty-handed, but Lord, you have what it takes to fill us and satisfy us. Lord, do it now, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Scene one of our story opens with Jesus sending out the 12 apostles to preach and heal. That may surprise those of us who have followed our sermon series in Luke, because the only one doing any preaching and healing so far, besides John the Baptist, is Jesus. His disciples haven't proven their ability to do anything for the kingdom of God. Just last chapter, they were sailing across a lake when a storm hits. They freak out, and so Jesus has to calm the storm and asks them, where is your faith? These are the twelve Jesus gathers in scene one. Read with me Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons 
and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. In whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The twelve preach and heal with power because Jesus gives them power. He turns his twelve of little faith into preachers, healers, and exorcists. And just so they know, the success of their mission doesn't depend on them. See in verse 3 how Jesus tells them to equip themselves for their journey by taking nothing. No bag, nor bread, nor money. God would supply their needs through those who would receive their message. And of those who would not receive their message, Jesus says, what? Read verse 5 with me again. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Shaking the dust from your feet is a symbol against them for their unbelief. According to Jesus, it's not only hearers of his preaching who are responsible to receive his message. Hearers of his disciples' preaching are also responsible to believe the gospel. Scene 1 closes with the twelve departing into the surrounding villages. Scene 2 opens up with another name taking center stage. Herod, the ruler of Jesus' home region of Galilee. Read with me what Luke has to say about Herod in verses 7 to 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Jesus' ministry is so remarkable, neither social media nor news publication is needed for word of his works to reach the Tetrarch of Galilee. Herod may have even heard from his own household manager, who Luke listed in the last chapter as a follower and financial supporter of Jesus. But Herod is hearing mixed reports about Jesus' identity. People know there's something more to Jesus. Not too many just-a-good-moral-teacher theories going around. He's some kind of prophet from God. Either John the Baptist, Elijah, I don't know, but somebody resurrected. They have their own personal hunches about the identity behind the rabbi from Nazareth, a man who thus far in Luke has cast out demons, healed the sick, forgiven sins, and raised the dead. Herod says, who is this about whom I hear such things? Conflicting theories on Jesus' identity surface in scene two. 
Herod then exits stage left, and in scene three, the twelve reunite with Jesus after their preaching and healing tour. Read with me verses 10 to 12. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Very logical of the disciples. People need food. There's no food here. Therefore, let's send people where there's food. But Jesus has another idea. Look at his response in verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. How should the disciples have responded? Remember where they just returned from. A journey where they would have been hyper aware of Jesus' power in them to preach, heal, and cast out demons. The question is, were they hyper aware of Jesus' provision for them? As they went from house to house with no bag, nor bread, nor money. They were just in this situation. But did they see their primary provider as the people they visited or the God who provided for them through the people. Wherever their understanding lands, Jesus graciously reminds them how far his power extends. Read with me verses 13 to 17. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we were to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Jesus doesn't need to go grocery shopping. He doesn't need to meal prep. A picnic basket filled with only five loaves and two fish does not restrict his ability to feed 5,000 because he's all powerful. He didn't even need the food and he could have fed 5,000 worlds. Jesus fulfills Mary's praise to God. When pregnant, she sang, he has filled the hungry with good things. Who is this about whom we hear such things? Who takes five loaves and two fish and leaves 5,000 satisfied? Scene three closes as 12 baskets of leftovers are gathered. Scene 4 opens with Jesus and the apostles distancing themselves from the crowd to discuss those conflicting theories on Jesus' identity. 
Read with me verses 18 to 20. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Here is the answer to Herod's question. Jesus is the Christ of God. But what does Peter mean by that? The first time the word Christ is used in Luke is in the angel's announcement to the shepherds at Jesus' birth. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For Peter to confess Jesus as the Christ of God is to receive him as the Savior Israel's waited hundreds of years for. So what does Jesus instruct his disciples to do now that they know that he's the one? Read with me verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Is Jesus anti-evangelism? Why doesn't he want the world to know he's the Christ? This isn't the first time he's done this. When Jesus cast out demons in Luke 4 and they cried, You are the Son of God, Luke writes, Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. What's going on here? Read with me verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why doesn't Jesus want the twelve to proclaim from the rooftops that he's the Christ of God? Because he must suffer and be rejected and killed. Because if he's not killed, he cannot on the third day be raised. And if the crowds know Jesus is the Christ, they will try to make him king. That's actually what was about to happen in the Gospel of John after Jesus feeds the 5,000. The Jews want a king now because they want deliverance from Rome now. But Jesus hasn't come to deliver them from Rome's disturbance of their earthly lives. He came to deliver them from something more destructive to the eternal souls, their own sin and the death it deserves. Jesus strictly charges and commands them to tell no one because he doesn't want the crowds to understand, misunderstand his mission. For Jesus to save the world from death he must first face death himself. He cannot allow man to enthrone him. He must be enthroned by his father only after defeating death. Jesus defies the Jews' expectations of what their promised king would do, suffer and die. 
And it's in this moment that he demands his disciples to follow in his footsteps. Read with me verses 23 to 27. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus says these words before he's crucified. To disciples who had no cross necklaces, whose synagogue had no cross decorations, and who'd never benefited from ministries with the word cross in its name. A Roman philosopher who died the century before Jesus called the cross a most cruel and disgusting punishment, saying, let the very word cross be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. So if that's how the disciples heard the word cross, why use that word to describe the life of a follower of his? Look at verse 23 again. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus commands self-denial. But not just any self-denial. Jesus wants self-denial for him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So what does Christ-oriented self-denial look like then? Given Jesus' command to deny yourself, taking up your cross most plainly involves crucifying your desires. But I love blank. But I want blank. I don't feel like blank. The border of Jesus' reign over the universe does not stop at our heart. Following Jesus requires all of you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And whatever part of you you'd like to keep for yourself, deny yourself that. Does the pain it costs to not follow your heart explain Jesus' use of an instrument of torture to describe the Christian life? But let's dig a little deeper. Taking up your cross also involves crucifying your love of possessions. Look at verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Jesus also contrasts taking up your cross with being ashamed of him. Verse 26. 
Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. Taking up your cross involves crucifying your fear of man. Taking up your cross might even involve loss of life itself if devotion to Jesus demands it. Verse 24, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Taking up your cross daily sounds demanding. So Jesus provides his disciples motivation. Read with me again verses 24 and 25. Why decide to take up your cross daily? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There's the disciples' motivation. Jesus holds out to them the greatest consequences. Losing your life and Jesus himself being ashamed of you when he returns. And yet he also holds out the grandest promises. Saving your life. And Jesus himself not being ashamed of you when he returns to complete his kingdom that will never end. Everyone loses their life. But who will you lose your life for? Will you lose your life for the only one who can save it? I can't say it better than Jim Elliott. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I've seen four comes to a close. How should we respond? The big idea of the sermon is this. Faith in the Christ takes up a cross. The cost of following Jesus will come up again as we study Luke. But our passage today emphasizes we take up our cross in three particular ways. Number one, faith in Christ takes up a cross through receiving Jesus as the Christ. In receiving Jesus as the Christ, we crucify any other allegiance that would undermine our, his reign in our lives. A book I just started reading by Stephen Wellham called The Person of Christ says, nothing is more important than getting right who Jesus is. Of course you're saying that. You're writing a book about Jesus. However, if in getting right who Jesus is, your eternity is on the line, is it really a stretch to say nothing is more important? How do you answer the question, who do you say that I am? Do you receive him as the Christ of God? Or do you reject him like the households in verse 5, who the apostles shook off the dust from their feet as a testimony against? 
Hearing the gospel preached leaves you with an obligation. Hearing the gospel is not like watching your favorite movie. You watch and say, wow, that was nice. Listening to the gospel preached is like watching someone propose to you. Will you marry me? You can't just say, wow, that was nice. What are we doing for lunch? By the nature of the invitation, you must respond with acceptance or rejection. Maybe later, to a marriage proposal is rejection. The gospel demands a response. Do you receive Jesus' words in Luke today? If not, no one should shake the dust from their shoes at you after church. But the modern application of shaking dust off your feet is being barred from membership in a local church and advised not to take the Lord's Supper. That's our testimony to say, we have not freed the conscience of someone who is not safe for rejecting Jesus. Jesus' confirmation of his identity to his disciples is Jesus' confirmation of his identity to you today. Take him as your Christ. Number two, faith in Christ takes up a cross through proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. In proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, we crucify self-protection that would keep us from identifying with him. That would become a real struggle for the eldest apostle, wouldn't it? This man also was with Jesus, says a girl of Peter, who replies, Woman, I do not know him. Three chances to identify with Jesus come. Three denials of Jesus result. Even the most bold of us can crumble in the face of pressure to say his name. I don't know how many missed opportunities I've had to give people good news about Jesus. I don't want to know how many. But you start to strategize. How will this person respond? What if they're offended? Will I lose my job or even my home? But that might be what taking up your cross requires. If any of those fears are realized because you winsomely, lovingly, were unashamed to tell someone how to save their life, the king of the universe will be unashamed to call you his own when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let us not be ashamed of the king of the universe who would die to purchase us as his bride, to become one with us. Let our fear of man be drowned by a fear of our holy, holy, holy God. When he comes back, 
the proud skyscrapers of Chicago will throw themselves into Lake Michigan trembling. Let us not fear mere mortals and be ashamed to call Jesus who he is. Tell them about why Jesus said he must suffer and die. Because sin separated us from God, who we were made to be with and enjoy forever. Sin needed paid for. Tell them about how he died. Drinking the cup of God's wrath we deserve. Wrath needed quenched. Tell them what his rising from the dead has to do with us. We needed resurrection. Shame about the knowledge of such realities is silly, isn't it? If you feel the heaviness of the call to take up your cross, you're in a healthy place to receive our last takeaway. Number three, faith in the Christ takes up a cross through depending on Jesus as the Christ. In depending on Jesus as the Christ, you recognize your powerlessness to take up your cross and you go to Jesus for help. How kind of the Holy Spirit to soak a passage about taking up your cross with reminders of Jesus' power. What's the feeding of the 5,000 doing sandwiched in the middle of a narrative about Jesus' identity? Because it makes plain to follow Jesus, we need Jesus. How should the disciples have responded when Jesus said, you give them something to eat? Jesus, we can't feed them anything you haven't given us. You gave us the power to preach. You gave us the power to heal. Who are we to feed 5,000? But you, we know you can feed them, Jesus. So if you're kind enough to involve us, you feed them through us, Lord. That's the most logical response they could have had if you calculate the Christ of God was in their midst. But you may say, Jesus isn't here to give me power. Jesus took that into consideration. Turn with me in your Bibles a few pages to the right to Luke chapter 24, verse 46. After Jesus does what he said he would do, suffer, be rejected, die, and rise, he let his disciples know he would not send them on mission without help. Luke 24 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But... Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
Jesus then ascends on high to clothe them with power by sending them the Holy Spirit. You don't got to take up your cross alone. You'll never proclaim his name alone. If you believe Jesus is the Christ of God, you are clothed with power from on high because the spirit of Jesus himself dwells in you. You raise up your cross by the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. As I look out at this congregation, we're doing it. Among us, we have families who have crucified their chance to gain a world of possessions by pursuing full-time ministry. We have lay elders and part-time staff who have chosen to care for your souls rather than go into full-time ministry elsewhere. We have members who have crucified their self-protection and committed themselves to telling people about Jesus at their workplaces and in their neighborhoods. We have fathers and mothers, oh, the mothers, who have crucified their personal ambitions and me time to raise children in the fear of the Lord. We have singles who use their gifts to build up the body of Christ in ways others don't have the capacity for. We have introverts who not only participate during greeting time, but also open up their homes to welcome others as Christ has welcomed them. We have people who have chosen to follow Jesus, even if it meant strained relationships with family. We have members of different cultures who have given up preferences to fellowship here because of the Christ who unites all peoples. We have older saints who watch the church and the community they joined drastically change around them and stayed. We have members who have crucified their attraction to the same gender to embrace how God defines holy sexuality. We have missionaries who would rather lose their lives than others lose their souls, having not heard Jesus' name. I see you. More importantly, God sees you. You are taking up your cross. More accurately, God's doing it in you. Finish the race. Ask your fellow members, what have you given up to follow Jesus? And how did he prove himself worth it? Be encouraged in the faith and encourage one another when you see it. Brother, sister, I think your sacrifice in this area evidences power from on high working in you. While we take up our cross with our hands, with our tongues, we pray for strength. With our hearts, we trust God to provide. And with our minds, we hope in his promise that those who lose their lives will save it. While we look inward to deny ourselves, we look upward to our source of strength, and we look forward to the joy set before us, eternity with the God 
who's more infinitely satisfying than the best meal your mother ever made. And then we look outward to proclaim good news of great joy for all people. What Jesus said then to his disciples, he says to you now. You give them something to eat. Give them Jesus. Give them the bread of life. The only bread who will satisfy. Twelve baskets full more than you could have imagined. Never give them Jesus without telling them the cross they must carry. That's how faith crises happen. Tell them about the cost and about the spirit of Christ and the body of Christ who will help them carry it. Maybe you've been ashamed of Jesus a few times like Peter. If so, in Christ, there's hope you'll be proclaiming him like Peter too. Go to Jesus now and tell him, I can't feed them anything you haven't given me, Lord. But I know you'll supply the strength to obey what you've commanded because you're a good, welcoming, generous Christ. May my speaking be your speaking, Lord. May my feeding them be your feeding them. May taking up my cross be your carrying. Because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Christ of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Take a moment to go to him in prayer now. And I'll close in a minute. Dear Heavenly Father, these words in Luke 9 are heavy words. I mean, we can't, we can't obey them, Father. But we trust and believe that because Jesus died, because he rose, because he sent his spirit, because he intercedes for us, we can obey in joy, and in one sense, this heavy burden is not, light, is not heavy. It is a light yoke that you give us when we come to you, Lord. So draw us. Draw us today, this week, and forever. And increase our yearning for when Jesus comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And may that sight drive us to take up our cross for you until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.